As I was editing this episode, I was a little bit worried that the audio was completely screwed and that it was going to be really low quality and that I would have to apologize to you all. It turned out that my new headphones were, um, I was just doing something silly with them. Uh, the audio was fine, I just had something wrong in the, like, the playback. It's not worth explaining what the problem was. Uh, the up, the kind of final upshot is everything's fine, <laughs> which is always a nice thing to hear at the start of the year. Happy New Year, Shinya and Kwailo. Uh, although I'm not clear if one should say Shinya and Kwailo if it's the start of the um, Western calendar New Year or whether you're supposed to reserve that for the Chinese New Year. I don't know. If, if you have a, a thought or if you know the objective answer on that, then please do contact the show via social media, our social media channels. Um, you'll hear more about those in the outro when I'm doing the plugs. I thought I'd just say this episode is going to be on The Invisibility Cloak by Gofei. And if you are a dedicated listener of the show, you'll be like, whoa, Gofei again? Because this is the third time we're doing him on the show. Which, dedica- dedicating a full episode to him, I should say. That's important because we had a couple of episodes where we looked at several stories and each author and story got a small segment. So those ones aside, Gilface the only guy, or author, I should say, that has had three episodes so far. Lu Shun's had two, uh, Chen Chiu Fan has had two, Liu Shin's had two. There's probably some other authors I've not, I'm not remembering who've had two, but Gilface is number three. So this is the full extent of his uh, books that are available in English translation are now episodes on this show. So hopefully that tells you something about how I feel about his writing. Uh, this this is an interesting story, The Invisibility Cloak, and my guests for the episode are really interesting too. It's two translators of the book, but neither of them have translated it to English. Um, you'll meet them when the interview uh, begins, so to speak, but we're going to do the translated Chinese fiction news first, the Churchific news. And it's pretty light-hearted news for the most part. I got four things, but the last two are kind of silly. You'll see what they are. So the first news item is uh, it's about the English pen uh, translation grant. Um, they've re- they've given one to uh, a book that's going to be translated from Chinese to English. It's the Sacred Clan by Liang Liang Hong, and it's going to be published by ACA Publishing uh, slash Sinuous Books, who have been in I uh, probably my last few news segments. Um, but that's because they're very busy doing lots of work to bring more books into English, so good for them. Uh, my second news item, we're just steamrolling ahead here. It's a newly published book. It's The Artisans by Shen Fuyu. And how do I know about this one? Because Jeremy Tiang tweeted about it. Why did he do that? Well, presumably because he's the translator. So I think I will read the, um, I'll read the blurb for this one because I don't want to shoot through this too fast. This is published by Astra House, by the way, who also do interesting Chinese uh, books in translation. So born in Shen village. In southeast China, Shen Fuyu grew up in a family of farmers. Years later, Shen, now a writer, returned to his hometown to capture the village's rich history in the face of industrialization. I'll just read the first two paragraphs, skip three and four. Through his own childhood memories and those of his ancestors, Shen resurrects the working life of Shen village through interlinked stories of 15 artisans as their lives intersect over the course of a century. While Shen's view of his hometown and his heritage is tinged with nostalgia, he does not romanticize it, nor does he sugarcoat the back-breaking difficulty of life in rural China. But he still captures its small satisfactions 
and joys of loving loving one's work with a great deal of care. Oh, that's what I try to do for my podcast. I have no idea if I succeed, but I certainly try. Um, Let's make a little less backbreaking effort now and do the silly news items, which I'm not promising that's going to be a recurring feature. Uh, I think the news will probably mostly be serious, but these two things are fun. Uh, they're both in the show notes. These will just be both links to tweets because, you know, Twitter is a stupid website. So um, the first one is a paper that is getting shared around on Twitter. It's a student's dissertation from none other than the Chinese University of Petroleum. Uh, let me see. <laughs> yeah, I can read this. Zhongguo Shiyou So literally just China Petrol Museum, if you like. China University of Petroleum. And the kids... I'm not going to be able to read the full title of this thing in English, um, but it's about um, political organization and social control of humanity in Warhammer 40k. And if you're wondering why this is the topic the student has chosen, it's because it's within this university, the oil university, it's um, the students working in the College of Marxism. So I don't know what I can say other than only in China. Um, I shared this with a friend who's into Warhammer, a, a Welsh friend with no, no China connection that I'm aware of, and he was um, surprised that Warhammer 40k's books have been translated to um, to English. Um, and all I really knew about Warhammer in China, I said I was steamrolling on. Now we're getting into, um, what's the word? Not diversions, tangents, whatever. Let's keep rolling with the tangent. Um yeah, my only knowledge of Warhammer in China is that the, when the movie came out, it was really big because a lot of people who were like in their early 30s had played the game, the Lord of the Ringsy style game, not the sci-fi 40k one uh, as, as youths. So I guess, I don't know, I guess Warhammer 40k also has a history in China, just like the, 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 the Coca-Cola classic Warhammer. But like, if you know something about that, Contact this. Contact me through the show's social media or the Discord. Let's hear it. I'd love to learn something um, without reading a dissertation. That is okay. Last news item. This one. I don't. How long can I possibly go on a tangent with this one? I don't know. But the news item links to my own tweet. It's a picture of the notes from Lemony Snicket, uh, aka Daniel Handler's new book, uh, Poison for Breakfast. My aunt gave me this for Christmas. Uh, it's a great book. It's short. And there's a there's a chapter where he meets a translator and an author. He's he's um, it's not real. I won't spoil why they're not real. Um, can I? No, I won't spoil it. But um, for reasons that will become clear if you read the book, Pu Song Ling and John Minford are the author and the translator. Uh, you're not told that in the main text when uh, the uh, Lemony Snicket, the narrator of the book, is conversing with them. You you don't even know the author's Chinese. Um, but it tells you in the notes at the back that they are in fact Pu Songlung and John Min- uh, John Minford, and when they're dis- uh, having their conversation with Lemony Snicket, uh, they're talking about strange tales from a Chinese studio. That totally took me by surprise, but presumably Daniel Handler, the man behind Lemony Snicket, has read said book, and maybe even more translated Chinese fiction. Maybe I can get him on the show. That's... Um, that's something to shoot for, I suppose. Okay, so with all that out of the way, I think we can call the translated Chinese fiction news to a close. Uh, I'll shut up and you can hear me. <laughs> well, this version of me will shut up and then you'll hear the new version of... Or no, no, not the new. The old version of me 
from 2021 talking to Gire Fidan and Sainio Rano about their work translating Gilfe's The Invisibility Cloak into their own languages, which are Finnish, no, sorry, Turkish and Finnish, respectively. There you go. I've, uh, I've revealed that for you, but you can find out the rest in the interview. So enough, enough for me. Let's hear it. On the show, we have Gire Fidan and Rano Sino, two translators of the same author, both translators of Goethe's The Invisibility Cloak. So really exciting. Um, we've never done anything like this before on the podcast, actually. Um, and I haven't even said what languages you guys translate into yet, but we can we can get into that. I'll just start by asking how you're both doing and what you've been up to lately. Um, Gire, do you want to go first? Yeah, of course. I've been just after the pandemic, of course, I've been, uh, I can say that it was a very productive period of time for me uh, as a translator and an academic. So I just managed to finish many translations in the last two years. And uh, lately, just uh, a Chinese classic, I'm sure that uh, our listeners all are aware of that book. It's called Kuiguza. It has been translated into Turkish and lost Last month, I also tr- finished Mao Chengji, uh, the cat country. Awesome. Uh, and now it's uh, the editor is right now is working on it. So hopefully uh, it will be out next year. And uh, I'm still working on a, uh, another book, another translation from Lu Yao. And also uh, last year, I, uh, as I said, it was a very productive year. So um, I also uh, translated and later on, of course, it was published. Zhuangzi. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it has been, of course, I was working for some time uh, all, all on these books. And uh, Guiguzi is just released, like it has been a month, and it's going very well. And shall I go to the uh, something about myself? or? Well, let's pass the button to Rano. Uh, Rano, how are you doing and what have you been up to? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. I uh, recently finished my translation of uh, The Last Quarter of the Moon by Zhu Zijian. So we're editing that at the moment, and it's going to come out uh, in Finnish, I think, uh, I believe, in January or February. And uh, then I've been kind of, uh, I've had a slow start with my next translation, which is uh, uh, translating science fiction and uh, Liu Zijian's book, uh, Ball Lightning. It's very exciting. Um, can you each tell the listeners a little bit about yourself so we could, I guess, most importantly, say what language you're translating Chinese into? But it'd be really interesting if you could also tell us, um, like, how did your connection with Chinese lit or just Chinese stuff begin? OK, shall I go first or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born in 1980 in Ankara, uh, capital of <laughs> Turkey. <laughs> Uh, so, and I have been in Sinology department at Ankara University. I had my BA, MA and PhD from that department. And uh, now, right now I'm working as a professor of uh, Chinese language and literature at the university, again in Ankara. And I've been uh, working on translations almost, I think, 15 years now. And uh, I'm translating uh, from Chinese into Turkish. Uh, I translated almost 13 books from Chinese into Turkish. Uh, some of them are Chinese classics and also some uh, modern literature work. 
And can I just ask what led you to study Chinese or Chinese lit in the first place? When I was in, uh, even in primary school, I have just, I had some interest in, in Chinese because as, I think the first thing was the Chinese characters was very interesting for me. And later on, uh, we, we have a university examination, a university entrance examination in Turkey, like in China. Uh, so I have this, I, I had to make my choices and I just, I chose Sinology. Uh, at Ankara University, and later on, I just studied Sinology. Nice. So there's a Turkish Gaokao. I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, actually, Turkish Gaokao is, uh, I think, roughly, it's like two million students mm. take this examination. And later on, of course, it's up, up your uh, grades, then you can choose, uh, you know, several universities and several departments, of course. Okay, awesome. Um, Rano, I'll turn to you now. Can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself, uh, what language you're translating into, and yeah, also like why why Chinese? How did it all begin? Uh, yeah, so I've been uh, translating Chinese literature since 2014. Uh, mostly I've been translating modern modern fiction novels, but I've also translated a couple. Uh, I translate Fang Fang's Wuhan Diary a year ago and uh, also you asked uh, China in 10 words so and uh, I yeah, so my first translation came out in 2014 and that was about when I had been learning Chinese for about eight years so I think it was 2006 when I started with my first Chinese class uh, why I started learning Chinese is uh, it's uh, very closely connected to cinema so I was uh, in my early 20s I had a had a I think two or three years uh, during that time, I was watching all East Asian movies I could get my hands on, and I was really loving it. And uh, at some point, I decided that I, I really one day I'm gonna live in that part of the world, and I really want to. I mean, in order to do that, I want to learn a language also. And uh, I actually wanted to learn Korean, but uh, that was not available in the in the city where I was living in. So Chinese Chinese was a was a second choice and uh, really uh, when the teacher gave me my first homework to write down the write the characters from one to ten ten times each in this great piece of paper then uh, I just really instantly fell in love with the language and here I am. That's interesting because my connection with China began with uh, I guess applying for ESL or TEFL jobs I wanted to go teach somewhere in Asia wasn't too bothered about where I had one offer from a Korean company, a South Korean company, that is, and one offer uh, offer from a Chinese company, or maybe two offers from Chinese companies. And it just so happened the Korean company was a bit more prickly about me getting my um, university certificate. It was quite late in coming, and the Chinese companies were more troubled war. They um, were <laughs> were less hostile, basically. So. Yeah, it was just it, it ended up being Chinese and not Korean for me because the oppor- the opportunity was more available, not not because I made a hard choice. So yeah, that's it's interesting that you had I'm not completely the same but kind of similar experience. I want to keep us moving, so I guess we can look at the author um for this episode. It's Gofei, who this podcast is returning to for the third time. The first time uh, we covered a book by Gofei, it was Flock of Brown Birds. Uh, then a little further down the line, I had uh, his English translator of late, 
Kanan Morris on to talk about Peach Blossom Paradise. And now we're, we're back in Gilfei country, uh, Gilfei Chongji. So I'm pretty excited because I really enjoy reading his books. But I guess for um, for listeners who've tuned in recently, we should sort of introduce Gilfei. And I thought a fun way to do that would be to ask you guys, what's your first point of contact with him? Like, what's the first book of hers, of his, that you guys read? And I guess I could also say, feel free to ask each other questions. I'm not trying to sort of grill you one-on-one all the time. It'd be nice if we can have a a back and forth. So, I don't know, does anyone want to jump in and talk about their first point of contact with Gilfei? Yeah, my uh, first contact with Gilfei is was the invisibility cloak and tell you the truth that's still that's also the last contact i've had with his work so far so i've uh, that's uh, that's the only book i've, I've read by Gilfei so far and uh, <clears throat> i'm looking forward to reading the Jiangan trilogy especially but it's kind of uh, uh, books there on my bookshelf and they look pretty thick and it's kind of like uh, <laughs> when am i gonna have the time and energy to them and then it's also if it's a it's if it's a thick book then it's uh, also going to be a tougher one to promote to a publisher so i'm kind of uh, focusing on some of the thinner thinner works of fiction right now that i have how did you end up uh picking that one up or was it an ebook that you didn't even need to pick up like how did you get your hands on the copy yeah i uh just one of my one of my trips to China, I usually, whenever I get an opportunity to go, then I usually visit as many bookstores as I can, and then I will have uh, 20 to 30 new books uh, in, my, in my suitcase when I'm traveling back home. So I, uh, this was, uh, I'm usually looking at uh, what's, what, which books have been translated into English and see which ones sound interesting. And then, then I, I, my shopping list is based on that. And Gilfei's uh, Invisibility Clock definitely was one of the one of the ones that I was most curious about. Cool. Uh, Gire, is your story similar or totally different? No, it's, it's a similar story, actually. And yeah, it was uh, it was a good choice, I think, uh, to translate that book. That's why in the first place, as Rauno said that, you know, uh, I'm also going to bookstores or just, you know, having conversation with friends. And so, you know, just uh, I'm just reading these books and looking at the topics of these books, and then uh, I'm just deciding to if I'm, if there's an audience uh, in here in in Turkey. So uh, it's very similar, right? And how did each of you end up translating the the books? Like, how did it turn into business or work from just reading for pleasure? I'm always uh, I I'd say I, I read about five five and well, five to ten Chinese books every year, and then I pick. The ones that I like the best, or the ones that I feel like perhaps suit me as a translator, and then I start offering them to Finnish publishers. So, Gefe, yeah, I really like the book, and uh, then that was like I think that was one of the four titles that I offered to the publisher that that year, and then I think they went for two of those books. I forgot what was the other one, or maybe I, I think I was translating Liu Tsuin back then, so we knew about the other projects. So. Anyway, yeah, the I, uh, Invisibility Clock was one of the books that I was pitching to the publisher and they also felt good about it and decided to go for it. Cool. What about you, Gire? Yeah, it is, um, some, mostly I'm just looking at, you know, the the, um, uh, the book and then reading the book and later on I just, you know, uh, uh, I'm just, after reading the book, 
And I'm saying that, you know, I should translate this book. I mean, I'm sure that people just will, uh, will like the book just like I do uh, when I read the book. So basically, it's, uh, it's, it's big, big, I can say that, you know, mostly it's just uh, kind of that if, if I just like reading that book, I'm just, you know, I, I just want to share it with, with the audience, with, with the readers. Uh, so as you know, you know, translation is just, it, it takes a very long time and it's a very intense job to do. So um, uh, actually choosing uh, translations is also important. Yeah, I don't know if you guys uh, have talked much before about this, but have you found that reception, the reception of the books that you guys have translated in each of your countries and languages is similar or or really different? Like, have you talked much about that before? Yeah, I think we did, right, Rano? Yeah, I'm not sure what did, what did we... <laughs> Like, is it easy to get readers or reviews or? Yeah. I think we, we, we talked about it, well, no, I mean, just like two years ago when we were, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, if I, if I uh, think about the situation in Finland, we have, we have very, very few people translating directly from Chinese. I think there's only two of us actively, actively translating Chinese literature. And therefore, the number of books coming out every year it's that's like uh, I don't know two three four titles four is the maximum and uh, because there are so few titles then it's I'd say that it's relatively easy to for these books to also get attention reviews and uh, people are people are very interested in Chinese literature and since there is no uh, the, the number of books coming out every year is so oh, small then uh, yeah whatever comes out is kind of not automatically doesn't get attention but it's it's kind of easier for instance if i compare finland with sweden sweden has roughly twice the population of finland and they have almost nearly 20 books 20 chinese books coming out every year and i have heard that it's kind of it's very hard to get reviews then so there's a clear connection like uh, yeah even we just yeah there's just so few titles coming out that whatever comes out then like, yeah you will get some attention definitely right so i have to ask is that one other translator who works in chinese to finish are they your your friend or your nemesis uh it's uh we're not friends but we're not enemies <laughs> we're kind of we are we are keeping in touch every now and then and I have kind of I've always made sure that I, I'm I'm telling her with w what are the authors that I'm looking into and she's kind of she's doing that the same and telling me as well and luckily we're kind of uh, our interests are in, we're, we're kind of we're interested in a little different different authors so we haven't stepped on each other's toes so far yeah. can you imagine the nightmare if you both wanted if you were both like huge Liu Cixin fans or something. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, I translated Liu Cixin that I actually, uh, after I translated the first book, then I, I met uh, a, I met the guy who uh, I was giving a, giving a lecture talking about my work. And uh, after the lecture, this guy comes up to me and says, like, it was my dream to translate this trilogy. So I kind, uh. of, <laughs> kind of destroyed that guy's dream it seems so it's kind of yeah yeah it's sad if that happens like there's so few of us so what are they what, what's the likelihood that we're gonna all in 
interested in the same authors. Mm. And Giray, what what about in Turkey? Yeah, um, I think we have a couple of translators, but not many. And for the audience part, I can say that possibly the one of the best examples that I can give you that we have translated uh, the Art of War from Sunzu uh, back in uh, 2014 with my professor. Unfortunately, he passed away before the publication of the book. Uh, but the book did very well and it became a bestseller. It sold over 400,000 copies and uh, it was a very successful uh, translation. And it was the first translation directly from the Wenyanwen, you know, the, the classical Chinese into, into Turkish. And for the other books, I, I, I think that, you know, the mo- modern Chinese uh, literature uh, is also, I mean, uh, welcomed by Turkish readers uh, and especially the classics. Uh, because we don't have the 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 entire, you know, uh, classical, uh, philosophical and uh, literature, uh, literary works of of Chinese. So I'm just uh, trying to translate uh, more classics into into Turkish. And there is an audience, and uh, people are just you know very interested in reading uh, Chinese classics and of course the modern literary works. Okay, awesome. Um, I'm going to keep us moving on to the next question, which is about Gofei, coming back to Gofei. Um, I wanted to ponder about his literary persona. Um, so I did talk about this on past episodes. And um, I th- I think, yeah, Kanan Morris did talk a bit about um, where he sort of sits in the literary scene in, in China. He's... Um, kind of retreated, I think, a little bit from writing to just his university job. But forgetting him as a celebrity, maybe we could think about his style as a writer. Um, Because the three books we've covered on the show, or including the one we're covering now, are all really different. Flock of Brown Birds is very sort of experimental, kind of surreal or modernist. It's it's not really set in, in the real world, so to speak. And it's quite showy and intellectual in a way. And then the invisibility cloak, we're we're in what was, I guess, at the time, modern day Beijing. It's quite a kind of, I don't know if the right word is bourgeois, but it's about people in the city with very sort of urban concerns. There is a bit of a weirdness under the surface. I'm sure that's going to come up. Um, and then Peach Blossom Paradise. I guess it's, there's a similar weirdness under the surface in that story, but it's historical fiction, really set like a hundred or so years ago um but would you guys i mean maybe i don't know around i think you said you've you've just read the one book but what sort of style do you guys see in his writing how would you how would you begin trying to describe it if no one wants to go first um i'll 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 pick i'll pick one of you but uh what do you think okay uh gire what do do you have any thoughts yeah, I think his um, uh, his style is uh, actually. I just you know sometimes I'm reading the comments from the readers. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the readers was you know he he or she I don't remember that wrote. Uh, it's like a, a kind of uh, a bubble, which is that you know um, a kind of uh, very easy reading book uh, for invisibility clock. Uh, so uh, I think. Uh, possibly, uh, I can say that his style is. Uh, we, I can say that it's it's not that complicated, so people can easily understand his style. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's um, 
it's pretty it's pretty simple although um I, yeah i can't help i couldn't help but wonder like especially towards the end when the book does get pretty strange is is there something i need to be reading between the lines for but like really you don't have to be like i'm when you said about comments on the books i'm looking at goodreads here top review uh, on goodreads is from 2016 and there's some interesting interesting paragraphs I'll, I'll read a couple um one one says what elevates this novel is the ordinary man quality the sense we have of a human fleck bobbing on a wind-tossed sea over which he has no control the bad things that happen are outside of his control and though he makes plans and efforts to extricate himself there is a certain inexorable flow to his outcomes and then i'm gonna skip forward slightly to another paragraph that says one of the more intriguing things Ge does in this novel, although I don't know if we can say Ge, because Gefei is a pen name, so it's not his family name. So I'll say Gefei. One of the more intriguing things Gefei does in this novel is debunk the integrity of Jiang Songping, Tsui's best and only friend, and he does it using a pomegranate. Jiang Songping was a clever boy, but Tsui's mother could see right away he was going to be the kind of person who owned people. Jiang had a way of sounding authoritative even when he spoke rubbish. He could make a great podcaster. All of us come under the spe his spell to some degree when he states categorically that all pomegranates, no matter how big or how long they've grown, contain the exact same number of seeds, 365 to be exact. Our eyes pop a bit with this news for, for who has ever actually counted pomegranate seeds and who could dispute this entrancing fact? Later, we, l we learn with the chagrin we share with Tsui's sister that in fact, Jiang lied on this occasion, and perhaps on many others. And I think there's a few things in these comments that do vibe with how I felt reading some of Gefei's books. Um, the word entrancing that came up there, I did feel pretty entranced reading all of Flock of Brown Birds. I did get a bit trance-like, into a bit of a trance-like state reading The Invisibility Cloak. I felt very immersed at points. And Peach Blossom Paradise often gets a bit dreamy. Um, and although it's set in the real world, appearances and realities often are sort of layered on top of each other. We get surprised. Definitely in Peach Blossom Paradise, things that you thought were um, innocuous come up later to have something that was going on in the background that you didn't see. So I don't really know how I would boil that down into one word or a sentence, but it sort of matches my experience reading the books, that there's a sort of a dreamy quality despite all the realism and you can never really be sure of what's truly going on. Do, do, does that does that sound right to either of you, or do, do you have different feelings about this book? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've also I've uh, read lots of uh, comments by Finnish readers, and this is something that comes up frequently. Is this that I'm kind of uh, I'm reading, but I'm not sure if I'm getting all of it, like. What else is there beneath the surface that I'm not seeing? And people are, people, uh, a lot of readers feel even quite confused. What about you, Giray? Yeah, it's 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 the same. Just uh, I think it's 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 easy to read, and uh, the characters are also very human. So mm. uh, I think it's just they think possibly the readers just think that they're just uh, they're just missing something in the text, uh, but they're quoting many from from the book uh, as i go through these comments yeah some some, yeah. some readers have also said 
that uh, they think that Gilface is just being lazy, like he has written a very short, short novel and uh, leaving a lot of questions unanswered and a lot of, uh, lot of mysteries for the reader and like, uh, just lazy writing, but uh, yeah. I guess that, that could be possible, but um, he still, I think he still produced a good book, even if he yeah. was not, bo- not, you know, not bothered about tying up every loose end. I think I should stay on this Goodreads page so I can sort of introduce listeners to the plot because we've still not described that yet. And um, I um, I read this one quite a while ago now. So I'm this is for my benefit too, actually. So I'll, I'll read the blurb and then maybe we could sort of analyze this blurb and see if we think it's a good one or not. So here, here it goes. The hero of the invisibility cloak lives in contemporary Beijing where everyone is doing their best to hustle up the ladder of success while shouldering an ever-growing burden of consumer goods. And he's a loser, talking about the hero there. Well into his 40s, he's divorced and still doting on his ex, childless and living with his sister. Her husband wants him out. In an apartment at the edge of town, with a crack in the wall, the wind from the north blows through, while he just while he gets by, just, by making customised old-fashioned amplifiers for the occasional rich audio obsessive. He has contempt for his clients and contempt for himself. The only things he really likes are Beethoven and vintage speakers. Then an old friend tips him off about a special job. A little risky, but just don't ask too many questions. And can it really be that his that this hopeless loser wins? This provocative and seriously funny exercise in the social fantastic by the brilliantly original Gofei, one of China's finest living writers, is among the most original works of fiction to come out of China in recent years. It is sure to appeal to readers of Haruki Murakami and other fabulists of contemporary irreality. So what do you guys think of that blurb? Does it sound right to you? I think it's quite, quite good. Uh, And especially uh, some Turkish readers also, they have seen the similarities between Murakami and Gufay. I think because of the music uh, that he was using in his book. Right, yeah. Um, High fidelity audio. I've not read a lot of Murakami, but I seem to remember characters maybe like to listen to stuff on vinyl. I don't know if I'm imagining that. Um, Rauno, what did you think of the blurb? Well, I think it's a, yeah, it's a really, really great description of what the plot had to Right. Um, yeah, I like I liked some of the bits. I like the word fabulists um, because so much of the story seems kind of mundane, like it's just a guy who's not done much with his life. But some of the circles he moves in get really interesting. Some of the, not like the highest echelons of Beijing society, but some of the wealthy people he meets are intriguing. And you get a sense, because he, like, like, like the blur pens at, he, he sort of gets involved with someone who appears to be, if not a gangster, then some kind of high level criminal. And you never see exactly what's going on there. Hints of things are, I think, dished out to us. And I, I find it interesting. Um, and I've, like I said, I've not read a lot of Murakami, but the, what I have read is his book. The fiction by Murakami I've read is um, Men Without Women. All these short stories about me, pretty much about men, usually the relationships to women. And like some of them are more surreal than others, but generally they're like really subtle, subtly off in some way. And so I think that comparison worked a lot for me. Um, Rauno did... Have you read a lot of Murakami, or, or not so much? Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. No. 
that comparison makes me want to read more. I can say that. Um, yeah, I realized something I should have done actually last question was mention his pen name because uh, we've this has come up on previous episodes of the show and we didn't really get an answer what's up with Gofei but I saw you guys maybe I forget who but one of you guys maybe does know the answer to this one so why did um, the man who chose the name the pen name Gofei choose that name? Oh yeah the part of the Finnish library system there's a service online service called ask a librarian and you can basically online you can send whatever whatever questions whatever you want to know you can ask a librarian they will basically find find the information find the answer for you it can be can be connected to literature or it can be whatever like causing global warming or whatever but anyway a few months ago somebody asked about Gofei's pen name and then they forwarded it and uh, I didn't know the answer so I had to do some research and I found uh, an interview. Gofei has been asked, like, what's the, the origin pen name? Because uh, you can, it's tempting to, when you look at the, the characters, Go and Fei, that see the girl as some kind of a frame, kind of, this kind of square or frame where you can put, put, put this, for instance, you can put an author in, in, in of a frame, and then this Fei is, has, this kind, has this meaning of a negation. So you can, can kind of see that, okay, this is somebody that doesn't fit into any classification or frames. But in fact, uh, what Goethe did, uh, I mean, first of all, the reason he wanted to have, needed to have a pen name was that uh, his real name, Liu Yong, is too common and ordinary in China. So apparently he was in the 80s, he was working in a, I think he was teaching already in a university in Shanghai. And then in his dormitory, whenever there was a phone call for Liu Yong, then somebody, you know, somebody's yelling, calling out your name in the hallway and then it's like three or four guys coming rushing to the phone so he, <laughs> he realized that, okay if this dormitory has already four Liu Yongs then how many Liu Yongs do we have in China <laughs> an army yeah so so then he decided okay I need a pen name and uh, what he did was he got his dictionary and opened it from a random page and pointed at a random character and the first character was good and then he did it again, he flipped the page, and then the next one was fake. And then he felt like, okay, well, that sounds like a good combination. Yeah, sometimes that's, it's fake. That's, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much the story. Apparently later, he, he, was, uh, he was pleasantly surprised when he realized that Gofei is actually the first name of, uh, of the father of a famous Song Dynasty poet, Li Jingzhao. So he was happy to find this connection between this random pen name that he came up with, with with a, with a famous, famous that sounds like something that would happen in a good face story yeah. weirdly enough okay um i guess we can move on to the next little point i've got the context so that blurb mentioned that we're in contemporary beijing but it's not beijing 2021 so do you guys want to talk a bit about like the condition of society in beijing like what sort of decade we're in when the action's happening but definitely uh we are in a Beijing that, uh, from the from the point of view of the protagonist, is definitely not the Beijing that that it used to be. He feels very nostalgic about the about the Beijing of his childhood, and and now everything seems too big, too crowded, too loud. Yeah, there is um, a scene that sticks in my mind when he's on one of his jobs and he goes up to this apartment. Um, this sort of nicely kitted out apartment 
to help these people with that much more money than him fix their stereo. And that that actually reminded me of some some brief encounters with um I don't know, not mega wealthy Shanghai people, but people much further up the Shanghai ladder than I was living there as as an English teacher. And I got the feeling the feeling that I remember having is this is one apartment in a building with must be a hundred or more apartments. And there are hundreds more of these buildings. You know, it's just this this big urban forest. I mean, I know a lot of cities are like that, but in somewhere like Shanghai or Beijing, the scale is just crazy. Um, so yeah, I guess I don't have a childhood to mourn for like like our hero does, but there's there's something to it for sure. Being able to just sort of feel in, feel invisible or feel irrelevant, feel left behind. Yeah, I think it's this character is also kind of common nowadays all around the world, right? I mean, not everybody is just uh, lucky enough to uh, climbing up the ladder. So I think we it's kind of a common um, character that I mean, in, in all around the world, people can see some similarities with uh, with themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a a passion and be really good at something. And maybe with business savvy, you could turn it into something lucrative, or maybe even with business savvy, it's never going to make you rich. But I, I wanted to ask and stop me if it's like being it's, a translator, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you read my mind. Do you, do you feel sympathy on that level? Yeah, I think it's just uh, possibly uh, it has been like like two, three years uh, uh, translating this book, but the, the most striking. Uh, scene in my mind just you know it's it's his attitude a sarcastic attitude towards the intellectuals which i find it very interesting because you know gofei is an academics so i also can kind of understand that uh, you know feeling that because i myself was also an academic so uh, so it's a kind of that you know there's a very sarcastic kind of approach to these intellectuals that you know talking kind of loudly or just saying bold things uh, to each other and he's just you know just in his mind he's just just making joke of them so i think that's that's very interesting yeah i feel that too because my my education's in the humanities i find intellectual stuff really interesting but i do kind of think like i have some kind of technical skills like i can do a podcast i'm pretty good with um computers in various ways but also i i know how to write i can put together a decent story or a sentence um and i think i've had there's a part of me that thinks that makes me so much more of a a rounded person than someone who can only deal in like abstract social or political ideas and has like no one no technical skill in anything and two no passion for anything that's like detail oriented and isn't just about ideas. And if if Gofei's got anything like that in him, then I could see him putting that into the character. Like it makes a lot of sense to me because there's many ways to be smart and intelligent. It's not all just about high-blown ideas. I don't know, do you as as people who work on something technical yourself translation, do you, do you ever feel like that that people who don't get into the muck of the details are an- annoying? Yeah, in a way, I think <laughs> Sometimes, but sometimes even just, you know, uh, I think in translation, I don't know if Ron also agrees with me or not, but you just need to uh, be skeptical about yourself all the time. Because mm-hmm. 
while you're translating that you know there's always other ways to translate so just you know you can go over through these you know, translation theories uh and just you know trying to uh, just do your best while you're translating so uh it's it takes a lot of, of effort yeah but still i mean just you know sometimes of course it's just uh through these you know good face character it's just you no know, he's he's i think he's he has a real kind of a technical information that he can just he can survive on it's i think it's very it's, it's a very interesting part of the character yeah uh, rauno did you want to say something sorry rauno i just no it's okay yeah i definitely see when i was translating this book and now that i i i read my translation this week and that's actually something i don't like doing because usually i just see i will find all the mistakes and all the choices that i think have been done better and uh, generally something i don't like doing i keep uh, you know, keep uh, stay away from my own translations uh, but uh, when i think about this protagonist he has this he, he has his craft and he's very passionate about it he's very devoted to it but he's completely invisible like we can see it on the first pages of the book he goes to deliver this uh, amplifier to the to this uh, Haidian Haidian district university professor and uh, and the professor barely says hello to him for him he's just a unimportant guy who just delivers the system and that's it and sometimes as a translator i kind of also feel even though i do get recognition as well but i still feel that most of the time translator as a translator, I uh, I kind of uh, I can't take it for granted that they people will uh, acknowledge uh, recognize my existence. So I can spend months and months and months on a project and uh, spend endless time on doing background research and just in order to hone every single detail of the translation. And then in the end, the book comes out and there's a review and you know, my name is not even on it. So yeah, definitely feel. <laughs> It's kind of like the, yeah. Mm, I think in my current job, I'm probably one of the bad guys because um, I'm in a magazine, uh, in a company that has several of these magazines. I'm one of the uh, editor, writer type people. So my name or any anything I've touched, basically, my name's going to go on. But everything I do often has uh, an art, like a little graphic artwork or a formatted image attached to it that, that, that someone in the design department did. And the magazine can only exist because of, um, you know, its revenue, which is handled by like the, the finance, marketing, sales sort of people. And then behind all that, there's admin, human resources, but only one, only one department gets to be the sort of rock stars. And it's the editors who are arguably, you know, are doing the least technical stuff. So it's um it's easy to think it's easy for me to think oh yeah um because I'm a little good with digital stuff I'm I'm so much better than these annoying opinionated humanities people but you know I I I think I could easily be on the other side of the the um the fence in this novel as one of the yeah annoying flashy people rather than the skilled um technocrat or technician um I guess we can move to the next question um, the section of society. I mean, we've pro we've kind of already danced around this, but do you guys want to say anything else about the social strata in in the novel, like where the author is and who he meets, aside from his clients? Maybe we could talk about the criminal he ends up tangled up with. Yeah, we definitely. I mean, uh, 
is uh, one of his clients is and uh, he has a lot of clients who are very very wealthy businessmen and of course this uh, mysterious inside hand that wanders uh, is probably the richest of them all i i thought it was notable that that guy seems to be based on the outskirts of beijing and like my experience living in china was mostly in Jiangnan, like Shanghai, Zhejiang, and maybe Jiangsu. Um, so I know what the outskirts of Shanghai are like. And on this podcast, I've heard plenty about some of the outskirt areas of Beijing, but I've never been to them. Um, so what do you guys think about the fact that we get further out onto the fringes of Beijing later in the novel when he's meeting this this ultra-rich, dubious guy? Uh, Giray, do you have uh, any thoughts? Raunok uh, maybe can answer that question. No, I was, uh, uh, what you just said reminded me of a detail, well, the woman, mm, the woman uh, says on the phone to the protagonist that he says that uh, during weekdays, this place is completely empty. So it seems, it seems like this, this, it's this uh, area in the mountains with uh, very, uh, very fancy, fancy homes. And uh, so it, it, it seems like this kind of a holiday place where these businessmen go for the weekend and for the holidays and it seems that they still they are probably during their week during most of the time they are still based in the Beijing proper so I kind of got this kind of vibe right um do you guys have much experience with those sort of areas in China in times you visited yeah I I, I, I have been to those some of those places I'm sure Raun also have been there, so yeah. So, but sometimes, of course, if, if if it's in winter, sometimes it can be very cold. Right. Yeah. Do you think the book captured the feeling you had visiting places like that, or did it feel alien? I think it was. It's. I think it's just very familiar to me when I read the book. That you know, because it's kind of very silent places, and. Uh, like of course, I just you know uh, while you're reading or translating, you just have this kind of uh, just these images in your in your brain that I think it's I have you know I have this kind of uh, possibly I created that image by the, the places that I have been to in, in in Beijing. So it's it's just you know I I was just having this image of a silent place, some you know trees uh, and that kind of place. Yeah. Mm. Like an eerie silence or peaceful silence? Yeah, I think it's peaceful silence because you know it's just uh, when you're getting out of any city in the world, then you just if you're going somewhere, then if it's silent, then you just I think it's just it's peaceful. Yeah, it it, it vibes with me because um, the first place I lived in in China was Doqing, um in Zhejiang in uh, Huzhou County. And it's Dujing contains Moganshan, Moganshan, which um, was a, a mountain resort during the colonial period for wealthy Chinese and wealthy foreigners, where they had these villas. So they would retreat all the way from Shanghai to Moganshan, which must have been a fairly longish trip. I don't know if they got the train or what, um, but the, the villas are still there. And there is, I believe, a businessman there who is a rather dubious character. I heard some stories about him, um, but I, I should, yeah, I should say one of one of the notorious um, visitors to Moganshan or summer residents or whatever was Big Ear Du, 
an, a, a famous Shanghai gangster. Like if I don't know if you guys have taken much interest in like the stories of old um, the the old Shanghai underworld, but this guy's always comes up big year do and then later on during the civil war or maybe the japanese invasion um mao and chiang kai-shek both both paid visits to Mogan-shan. so it has this sort of upper crust slightly frightening aspect to its history just like um this villa in uh invisibility invisibility cloak does but yeah there's a guy living i think and running a, a retreat there today called the, the naked naked ranch or naked resort and he's a South Af- white South African, and I heard some absolutely psycho stories about like times, at, like group, uh, a, a meal, either one that was at his house. I think it was at his house. Someone made a comment about the steak, and he started like screw, went from calm to like screaming at them. And I had a very surreal experience. I joined this. I got invited to this meeting of like all the foreigners meet the local government administration of Duching. And there was a representative of the naked retreat there. And he was like very, uh, it was some like 30 something white guy did a very like ass kissing talk to the, to the government representatives there. It was um, all very slick. But the thing that creeped me out was that the back of his suit had the naked logo, the naked resort logo on it, like in white on his black suit jacket. Just truly bizarre. Um, so when I think of like this villain, or not villain, but this dubious guy out in his uh, weekend villa on the outskirts of Beijing. It kind of reminds me of the dark side of Mogan Shan. But I don't know, that's just my own experience. Um, one of you mentioned the woman, because um, it's, it's, uh, it's not just a gangster, a male guy that hangs out in this villa. He has uh, uh, a lady of some sort there. Do you guys want to talk about her? Um, Rauno, do you want to go first? Sure. So, yeah, we don't know much about this this woman. Uh, when the protagonist uh, when the protagonist meets her, she's uh, she has her. I've kind of forgotten the ending. Am I right in thinking that our our narrator or our protagonist ends up in a relationship with the woman, kind of sporadically living in the villa, or have I completely garbled that in my memory? Oh yeah, they do. Uh, I don't. I think they don't get married, but he prefers to call her his wife. And they also have a child. They they will eventually they have a child together. Yeah. So it's a bizarre ending. What, what do you guys make of it? Yeah, I think uh, just just one sentence. Life goes on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he kind of. Uh, I mean, I I think throughout the story, it's 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 pretty obvious that even though this guy seems to have seems pretty miserable and he has really had his fair share of misfortune uh, in life. He still has uh, he has his passion, and that's I think that's a huge thing when you are like uh, trying to reach, trying to find happiness in life. And the only thing missing from his life is basically he 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 wants to be married and he wants to have a family. And so in the end, he kind of he gets what he needs from life in order to be happy. And why do you think he doesn't get legally married? What's what's going on there? Do you think? I think he he he's kind of on the way to marry her, right, Rauno? Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but it it can be like we kind of uh, he he's trying to figure out the past of this lady, and he 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 can't even find old photos of her, and uh, then the only thing he knows about her is that she she's she's from the south for whatever reason she has. Uh, I think I think she says that she was a hostage of this 
of this uh, mysterious, mysterious uh, thing, Titan. So, but, yeah. Basically, he, he he doesn't even know his, her name, and in the end, the, she 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 tells tells him that you can you can call me whatever you want, and he 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 tries call her Ufen, which is the her uh, his uh, his uh, his ex-wife's name, and she says, "Oh, that sounds good," and then I think she's called Ufen from there on. Mm. So yeah, we have a definitely her. Yeah, we, we, we really don't know much about this woman and I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that they also don't marry, I don't know. I kind of felt that towards the end of the book we were starting to leave everyday reality, whether that's on like a literal level, like we're going into his mental fantasies or mm. whether we're just leaving like norm- normality, everyday life for something a bit more off the beaten path. It, it made a lot of sense to me on that like an intuitive level because I think I'd probably agree with this guy that mainstream everyday life kind of sucks. Uh, it's really not that great, um, especially if your interests don't really match up with what a capitalist or whatever is what society wants of you on the economic level or the social level, whatever. Um, but at the same time, you have to sort of reach a compromise with it. Um, you can't go living off in your own imagination. It's bad for you. Um, and he, I feel, it feels to me like he he made something of a middle ground. Like he's gone, he, he's got some kind of a wife and kids. There's, they're not going to starve, but they've really, he's really departed from whatever attempt at a conventional life he was going for before, but that's fine because it was never really for him anyway. Does that sound right to you guys or do you have a different feeling? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just, you just find, as you said, it's, it's kind of um, not a kind of mainstream lifestyle and he's just kind of a retreat and yeah, so he could find uh, a way out, let's say. Yeah. yeah, a way out. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, Rauno, were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, he definitely, like if we com- compare him with uh, his childhood friend, this Jiang Songping, who is also now can be considered quite a, quite a wealthy wealthy man these days uh if you if if you compare him uh, the uh, the protagonist to Jiang Songping you, you can definitely say that from from point of view of Chinese society he is a loser but I don't necessarily think that uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with that I think he's a loser only from the point of view of the rest of the society but in his own life he probably he has, like I said earlier, he has all the makings of a of a good life. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's something I do to remind myself if I see someone I don't like or who really annoys me, seeming to do well. It's like that's their version of doing well. And you know what? As far as I'm concerned, they're totally wrong. So, <laughs> so never, so don't let it get to you. So long as you're doing what suits you, I, you know, it rings very true to me. Um, I think I should keep us moving. So the next thing I wanted to ask you guys was about the style of writing. I, I already said I felt it was way less flashy, maybe more, more mature and subtle than a flock of brown birds. So I wanted to ask you guys as translators, how did you try to capture Gofei's style in your own translations and your own languages? Okay, shall I go first, Rana? Okay, so uh, not only for Gofei, but all other uh, all books that I translated that just... Uh, I think it's kind of uh, constructing. Uh, you should, uh, tr- as a translator, at least I'm. What I'm trying to do is just I'm trying to construct uh, style and language for each book and each translator. 
so of course I'm I'm not sure that if I'm uh, always uh, successful about that, but I'm trying my best and. I think this for this book. Uh, I think it was the it's the, the, the style of the book, the writing style of the book. It, it was uh, I can say that it was uh, kind of uh, let's say uh, very simple kind of style. If you if I compare it with other books that I have, I have translated, so uh, I think it, it's it's a good read for even uh, for the readers also. Right. And what about you, Rano? <clears throat> yeah, I'm uh, when it comes to capturing capturing the, the the style in my own language i'm not actually even sure if i if that's something that i consciously think of during the translation process but definitely the book felt like it the, the style feels quite easy on the surface and i felt that as i was translating as well because i translated the book quite quite fast i mean it's a short book but uh, still like uh, i think like the time that i spent per page I think it was a was a pretty quick job. Okay, um, I have to ask you guys this question because it's not very often I get a, a Turkish or Finnish translator on the show. What is it like in general translating Chinese into each of your languages? Because quite often on the show we've had people talking about some of the uh, helpful and unhelpful things in the differences between Chinese and English. Um, so, like, obviously, the grammar works differently. Um, there is a bit of a Venn diagram of cultural references that both readerships either do or don't know. But that's going to be different for for Finland and Turkey, Finnish and Turkish. So, like, how would you guys describe that? Like, what what are the unique challenges? Uh, Gira, do you want to go first? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, I think the, uh, possibly English and Chinese. Uh, it's not. I think Turkish is much. Uh, it's uh, very far away from Chinese uh, in terms of syntax. So, mm. uh, so as you know, Turkish is just you know uh, it's it's not an Indo-European language. So uh, it's an Altaic language. So it's the, the syntax is uh, totally different. And uh, but when I just when I would translate. Some, you know, some of these cultural aspects can be just can be translatable in Turkish uh, because it's uh, it's also a kind of, you know, uh, there are some similarities uh, between these cultures. But but it's of course, if if I find something that if it's challenging to translate, then I have to use footnotes, especially in classical Chinese, uh, you know, classics. I it's it's I mean, it's, it's inevitable to use these footnotes. And but of, of course I'm just trying to uh, use as as less as possible for these footnotes because as you know sometimes it can be it it it, it can you know affect uh, the readability of uh, the, the text and of course it, it depends on the the, the literary work uh, it, or it depends on the text uh, but still just you know I have to sometimes just I have to just uh, create. Uh, some new words uh, or sometimes concepts if I mean if it's possible and possibly the the, the, the most challenging part of it is the uh, the, the names uh, because I mean the readers are not familiar with these names so if uh, the text that I have been translating so far that if the uh, names are translatable in Turkish if uh, then uh, the reader can comprehend better 
Yeah, so uh, that's that's a short overview of translating into Turkish, I can say. Okay, you you mentioned some of the, there's some cultural similarities. Could you give an example of that? Yeah, I mean this. Um, uh, let's say uh, you know the, the family relations in China, or the let's say um, some uh, names for relatives which we don't have it in in English. For instance, if you say uncle, I mean uncle is. Both goes for you know father's brother and uh, mother's brother, right? In English, yeah, uh, yeah. But in but in Turkish, we have totally separate names for both of them. And in Chinese, you know, it's it's all even more complicated. So yeah. it, when you hear the name, that uh, that you can understand that whose brother is this, right? Like Shushu or Juju or or other things. It's it's similar in Turkish. So. Uh, it's. I can say that you know the, the names for the relatives. It's it's very. Uh, I can. It's it's very. Uh, let's say, uh, very similar to Turkish. So that kind of cultural similarities. That's interesting. Um, I remember whilst living in China or talking to Chinese friends, uh, they would say to me, you know, in China we're really big on the family. It's it's really important. You know, you're a Westerner. You you wouldn't understand. This is unique to China, and I would never be an asshole but i would think or maybe sometimes say in a roundabout way well there are plenty of sections of western society which are kind of fixated on family values even if they're not as complex as as they are in china it's really not that hard for me to get my head around and certainly there are like as as to it being unique i'm sure there's plenty unique aspects but like yeah western culture might be lowest on the scale of like the importance of these some of these traditional family structures but I, I and i couldn't give any great examples off the top of my head but i thought yeah I, I knew like sure there are plenty of societies which place a great deal of significance um on 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 family for for one reason or the other um but it's it's interesting that you've given that specific example because something like names for matrilineal and patrilineal um people in the family tree sounds weirdly specific but i guess there are only so many so many shapes a family can take like if you can have a your mom can have a brother in china your mom can have a brother in turkey so it's you don't need some cultural connection for both languages to come up with a special word for it it's, no it's yeah that's right that's it's it's i'm not uh, specifically saying that you know that that's only a difference between these languages so as you know, all languages have their own, uh, let's say, uh, their own development. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you have less names in a certain language. It doesn't mean that that culture is not attaching importance to to family relations. It's it's not it's not mm. working like that. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is that, you know, that kind of names are just, you know, these are, you know, some similarities between these two cultures, which is just, even I sometimes cannot, you know, uh, cannot, <laughs> uh, just keep up with the, the Turkish names for relatives <laughs> because it's very complicated and sometimes it can be very uh it can be very i mean this it's it's very rich in, in a way but this is i mean just an example that i can think of i remember no. i in some of those conversations with chinese friends i would say yeah we don't have specially assigned names for grandparents in english but like we like i certainly use different names for my like my dad's mom and my mom's mom because it would be confusing if they were both called granny. So I would be explaining to my Chinese friends, yeah, one is granny, one is grandma, and it's normal to have different names, but there is no system for it. Every family's got different names. And they'd, um, yeah, they'd, <laughs> they'd be like, wow, that is so different. 
and yet kind of the same. But yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't meaning to imply that um, the language implies values or whatever. I think it was often my Chinese friend who would be um, maybe implying that, and I'd get touchy about it. I, I don't know, but I, I should I should um, include Rano in on this. Um, Rano, um, what's it like translating Chinese into Finnish? Does it have special characteristics? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about your question. I have to say that I can't think of too many specific challenges that would be connected to the uh, the, the the fact that I'm translating to Finnish. One thing, one one uh, technical difference between Finnish and Chinese is that, uh, whereas Chinese is a very compact language. Finnish, on the other hand, we have very, very, very long words, and uh, sometimes this can be a problem. Like you can have a very, very neat Chinese sentence, and then you might need a, <laughs> a need a, to make it into something very long in the Finnish translation. So that's definitely something that I is probably causing some issues on on, on an everyday basis when I'm translating. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if this is, maybe this can be applied to translation in general, or is it, is it just uh, that, that I'm translating from Chinese, but in, in my view, translation is, you are kind of constant, it's, it's like a constant uh, stream of uh, decision making, like you have every paragraph has some new challenge for you that you need to think about and you need to make a decision like okay do i need to do i need to somehow open this or do i need, do i need a footnote or you know or all kinds of that so you have to make these decisions on a constant basis and and no matter what those decisions are there will always be readers who hate you for that decision like they just so there will never be like a perfect decision that everybody likes and that's kind of uh when i'm translating from chinese i think it's uh it's a it's a it's a tough part of tough part of the job. <clears throat> I used to have quite a lot. I used to use quite a lot of footnotes or, or or endnotes in my earliest translations, but then I kind of mm, stopped using them after after I don't know four or five books. I have translated four or five books, and nowadays I'm kind of just. I think I am kind of. I have a lot of trust towards the Finnish reader. We have Finnish, I mean, Finland is a very small country and therefore we have a lot of translated fiction. We're maybe also very used to reading it and we don't always, I think for a Finnish reader, it's also okay that not everything is always explained to the reader. So there can be a lot of, a uh, lot of uh, this kind of stuff that you are unfamiliar with, cultural things and that kind of things. So I can kind of, I feel like as a translator, I can get away with not explaining everything, not not handing everything on a, you know, on a silver plate to the. I hadn't thought of that. How like, um, if it's a language, sort of a one country language, then the readership in that country might have its own characteristics as well. That's interesting. Um, I know Finnish, in, so Gire mentioned the sort of language family tree and that uh, Turkish is, it's not in the big Indo-European branch, it's in the Altaic branch. I know Finnish has its own sort of peculiar spot on that tree. Um, does that is that something that factors in at all, or is that just like a little not really relevant to to, to you as a translator? Yeah, at least it's not something that I have paid much attention to. 
I know there's a lot of similarities between Finnish and Turkish as well. We have been talking, discussing this with Mirai earlier. I guess uh, in Turkish, you also kind of words tend to get quite long because you can add a lot of uh, lot of uh, suffixes to one word and it always changes. Right. So in Finnish, it's suffixes and prefixes. It's not like German compound words. Is that, is that why they get so long? Uh, yeah, and we also have very long compound words as well. So yeah. oh, excellent. But, uh, basic, basically, you can add uh, add an endless amount of suffixes to one word. Yeah, yeah it's the same in Turkish. Yeah. yeah. So in English, you might use five words to express something, like something like in our houses, and then in Finnish, you would just take house, and then you would just add stuff in it, and it would be one word. So it's kind of yeah. That's how it just things become long and it's not always desirable from from the point of view of the reader sounds pretty bad for a typesetter as well you'd have to yeah. like try and keep these things on one line or choose where to break them yeah 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 we do when uh, yeah when we are reviewing the final what do you call it the final draft before we print the book then we're always paying a lot of attention yeah 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 i remember when i was doing my typography section of my publishing masters my teacher gave us German as the example. And he said, yeah, um, every book uses those little dashes to to break words. It means you can get neater set text, um, but you think it's bad in English. Check out this German book. And I, it hadn't occurred to me other languages might be further down that line than than German. But yeah, that's... In, in Finnish, the rules are relatively clear. So I think I am right. being confused by the English. How do you, where do you cut the word? But in Finnish, at least that's... That's pretty straightforward. You just have to look at like, does it does it look bad on the page if it's? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because when I was in primary school, uh, writing with a pencil, or then secondary school, a pen on paper, um, the teachers in primary school did say like, yeah, if you if you have to, if you can't get your word on one line, then yeah, you can uh, put a dash and continue it down, and there's sort of better places to do that. But as soon as you move on to working on a computer. There are rules for that, but the computer knows the rules and they're no longer your concern. I do know, though, on um, InDesign, the program sort of traditionally used for typesetting, in, at least in the English version, you can sort of fiddle with the settings to where, where it um, prefers to, to break the words. But yeah, that's I guess that's a topic for another podcast that I haven't started yet. We have one more question about the book. It's about going beneath the surface. Um, we've kind of already talked about this, but I'll, I'll, I want to drop this quote in anyway. This like this, this few sentences from the book, because I think they're 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 really great. Um, it's a great translation as well. So it goes like this: the best attributes of anyone or anything usually reside on the surface, which is where, in fact, all of us live out our lives. Everyone has an inner life but it's best if we leave it alone. For as soon as you poke a hole through that paper window, most of what's inside simply won't hold up to scrutiny. And the question I've got for you guys is, is that a warning or is it a morning? Is it like a sad reality? Or is he really saying, look guys, don't try and make things complicated. Just stay on the surface, you'll be happy. What What do you think? Uh, Gire, do you wanna, do you wanna go first? Uh, of course, every every reader, I mean, every translator may have some uh, different approach or feelings. But my feeling is that you know, whatever happens, just keep going on, and it's just. I think there's a kind of uh, yeah, people people may may suffer from certain things, but the most important thing is to 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 carry on. 
So that's that's my at least my feeling and my understanding. Right. Yeah. I've I, I, it makes sense to me because there's times when I've sort of thrown a tantrum when wife throws something bad at me and that's it, it helps nobody. But also if life throws something bad at me and I try and figure out what it means, yeah, there's often no answer. So moving on is the best thing to do. Um, Rauno, what do you think about this this little section about yeah, I not not yeah yeah I definitely see the mourning part. I guess I see the warning also. I I think this is something that I personally often feel as well. Sometimes I when I meet new people, I might like them, but then to be honest, like the more the more I learn, the more I get to know them. It's you start kind of seeing these kind of things that okay you don't like about this person and in the end it's like I, I think that's like inevitable it's you know everybody we're all different and you are gonna have this nobody's perfect and uh, and nobody you know you have your own values and your own views and everything and you know it's 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 not realistic to expect that other people around you would all be just like you yeah I can relate to that. Can we add some another word for that? Maybe just you know, it just came to my mind. I think it mm. kind of sounds like acceptance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just accepting what it is and just you know, because there's no other way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, warning or mourning, a bit of a extreme false dilemma there. Yeah, acceptance is maybe the better, the better middle option. Um, I was just going to say in response to what Rano said. So the two and a half years I was in Shanghai, I was in this international division of Shanghai High School with about something like uh, 50 or maybe even close to 100 other foreigners. And I, I this is I think this is a, a bad habit um, or impossible to resist when you're a, a foreigner living in China, especially in the English teaching scene where there's so many weird characters. I was kind of when talking to friends, I had kind of compelled to like analyze all these people like who's a who's a truly weird Laowai like what brought these people to China? What do they get up to? What's what? What are their unconscious drives? And looking back on it, I don't think though that was a great like way to bond with friends to like fixate on how weird other people are or how how contradictory or how surface level they are. It's um yeah, it's a bad sort of rabbit hole to go down because you won't you won't reach the truth. You'll just reach what you think you've constructed. To be the truth you know what i mean it's um yeah. it's a little bit of a void or even if there is something there you've you've just got no access to it you're better to focus on the reality in front of you um so like i've started a new job recently and i'm not trying to figure out the people i work with i'd rather just work with them it's um it might be less fun as an intellectual exercise but it's more viable for having a life so i think what you guys said there seems very true to me I think the book would be a way to think about that, how to deal with other people as well as just life. Yeah. Now that I'm reading the quotation, I kind of kind of also feel that uh, when I think about some of the comments made by Finnish readers, perhaps this quotation, this quote can also be applied to the book itself. It's kind of like uh, the book definitely has its inner life, and we what we see on the surface, like we don't we don't we don't see so much but maybe it's also maybe that's for the best maybe it's uh, we can all enjoy the book as it is but if we would want to really go for the all the details and all the answers then like uh, would it be a good thing for the book or would it just do a disservice to it yeah there's some things you can't unsee i was in a, a book club meeting yesterday um 
held by Sinoist Books about a translation of a Sutong book. They've titled it Shadow of the Hunter. It's a it's the yellow bird story. Uh, Huang Chua, I don't remember the, the Chinese name, but it's about the Sutong story. And the translator said something like um, he remembered there being a snake. And that was one thing he never quite could figure out. What was the snake doing in the story? And I said, and it was a Zoom meeting. I said in the Zoom chat, um, Sigmund Freud might have some ideas for you there. And it's like with some, yeah, like a psychoanalysis, Freud's school of thought. It's all about looking under the surface. But once you've... Um, once you've been introduced to that sort of way of thinking, you can't unthink it. Like once you've seen the snake as <laughs> what Freud would think it would be, would be, you can't unsee it. And maybe that was detrimental. Maybe it would have been better if you didn't go into the unconscious because, yeah, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny and it's not pleasant. And yeah, maybe it's better not to analyze books too much either for that reason. Um, I think we've been talking for a while now, so I'll keep us moving again. Uh, the next section is uh, word of the day. If you've each got like a word or phrase or sentence that you'd like to sort of our word immortalize as our word of the day, um, what would it be? Giray, do you want to go first? Uh, actually, I just uh, took it from the Go Facebook and it's first in Chinese and then in English, right? So uh, that would do it. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's Taiyang Hai Hao Duan Duan Di Zai Tian Shang Gua Jin. And it goes in English as, and the sun is still hanging up, hanging right up there in the sky. Okay. And why did you pick that? I think it's just uh, that, I think that sentence, while I was translating the book, I think this this sentence was just, you know, it caught me. Just uh, if I would just summarize the book, uh, I think I would use this one. Okay. And how did you render it in Turkish? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, I, I remember, yes. I just need to check it. Okay. Maybe Rauno can go on. Yeah, Rauno, what's your word of the day? Uh, so, so my expression is in Chinese, anju le ye, and uh, according to the dictionary, the English translation is to live in peace and work happily. And this is this kind of when I read this book and I think about the world of the protagonist and what he wants from life, I really, I really just feels that this is this is all he wants. He just wants to have a have a place of his own. He wants to have a family, and he have his little passion that even though it's uh, doesn't it doesn't make much of a living with it but it, it it makes him happy and this is something that i feel personally feel as a translator as well it's kind of like i'm also like i'm earning peanuts with this work and uh, i'm really like don't have much faith that i'm gonna be yeah i'm definitely never gonna be rich but i'm uh, i'm happy with that i have found my passion even if i'm invisible doing it and that's basically like uh, I think that's uh, the makings of a of a happy life, even though it sounds very simple. Right. And how did you render it in Finnish? Do you do you remember? Uh, no, this is not from the book, so it's just something that I. I uh, oh right. Okay. Yeah. My my bad. Yes. Of yeah, course. Yeah, okay. How would you say it in Finnish? Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> Need to think about it. it. it it's, it's yeah. It's one of these yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah, I uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to how to say it. No worries, uh, Gire. Did you manage to find your? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I did. Great. Uh, it's in Turkish. It's Güneş hala gökyüzünde duruyor. Cool. Okay. Now the next question. I admit I actually didn't think of my answer for this one. Um, but it was if you could pair any piece of music with the invisibility cloak, what would it be? 
yeah, I guess I guess I could pick any of the pieces of classical music that uh, the protagonist talks about in the book. Other than that, I don't really. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, I don't have something from Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah, but I uh, when I when I when I translate, I have this. Uh, I listen to classical piano music from Spotify. There's a long like I don't know ten hour playlist that I always listen to and. When I was translating this book, it really seemed to fit the mood of the book very well. I've I've got one. It's not. It probably isn't a perfect fit, but I remember at times in Shanghai, when I felt a little alone and alienated and invisible. Um, there was a, an album I came across. It was called "Depart from Me" uh, by Cage, and he's he's a he's a weird sort of figure himself. He's a He's a white rapper from somewhere in the States. He started out trying to be a real hard man and um, sort of midway through his career became like a sad boy. Like he sort of um, became the extension into rap music of like emo, (laughs) became quite emo. And there's a a song from probably one of the more downbeat albums. The album is called Depart From Me. I think that's a great name for an album. And I'm pretty sure that the track title i'm looking for is called um i lost it in havertown which doesn't make more sense doesn't make doesn't make much sense until you um read the title of the track before which is i found my mind in connecticut so i found my mind in connecticut i lost it in havertown i don't i don't really know what we're supposed to know about connecticut or havertown but just listening to this track wandering around um the city exploring places feeling kind of alone it 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 I kept doing it, so it must have done something for me. Do you guys have any particular pieces of classical music you pick out just so I can pop it in the show notes or play it in the episode? Uh, as Rano said, you know, the, in the book there are many classical music pieces, but uh, especially, uh, I think it's just, especially just lately I'm just listening one from Vivaldi, it's La Folia. I'm going to type these into our chat so I can reference them later. So, the folio, I think that'll do it. I may have spelled that wrong, but I'll, I'll find it later. Right, okay. So, we're on to our very last questions, the further reading questions. So, I want to ask you each, um, if listeners enjoy the Invisibility Cloak or Gilfay in general, and you wanted to point them to something similar that they might also enjoy, 
where would you point them? And this doesn't have to be Chinese lit. It just could be something Gofei-esque. Where, where would you send them? Well, uh, yeah, I haven't read Murakami, but he's, his name definitely comes up quite often in connection with his books. Okay, I'll pop, I'll pop him in there, Murakami. Uh, Girey, would you point anyone anywhere in particular? Maybe something tur- from, from Turkish, not really close to uh, Gofei, but also a very you know, interesting book. I think it's just recently translated into English, so maybe I can just recommend this one. Yeah, what is it? Uh, it's called the the Time Regulation Institute. So it's from Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar. It's a very interesting book. Yeah, so just it's not very close to Gofei's style, but it's it's, it's a very interesting book. Cool. Um, now I had one on my mind. What was it? Um, it's a much darker book than this one, but it's also a Japanese lit. It's um, No Longer Human by Osamu Dazai. Now, it's really pretty different um, from The Invisibility Cloak. If I had given more thought to it, I could have picked something closer. But yeah, it's a, a guy who's deeply alienated, doesn't fit in, which I think is far too extreme to match The Invisibility Cloak. But it's maybe got that sort of urban urban vibe or trying to escape the, the feeling of like the, the mood of trying to escape or not fitting in it's it's a parallel but um yeah it's a little it's a little different it's not as chilled out as i said the invisibility cloak is so i guess that that would be my mind there um last question um where can listeners find you guys online or if they're interested in checking out your translations where would you send them and google us maybe <laughs> yeah my uh, right. my online presence is pretty limited, and it's uh, limit, mostly limited to Finnish, the Finnish language. But if you if you want, you can find me on Instagram. I have a I have an account there, and I'm sharing little glimpses into my work as a translator. So if you can, perhaps you can Google Translate the the posts and get something up. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of Instagram and the visuals, if if listeners want to find something beautiful on Instagram try and find the cover of the Finnish edition of the Invisibility Club because, oh my god, it's it's so nice. Oh, it's yeah. one of the nicest book covers I've seen. But yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say there. Um, do you guys want to say anything else before we, we draw things to a close? Yeah, uh, thank you for having us and it was it was a pleasure. Again, just, you know, uh, as Confucius said, um, it was nice to at least just online to be able to uh, meet an old friend. Yeah, it was it was great that you were both able to join as well. It was it was yeah, it was a fun chat. Haven't been able to meet you know since uh, we have our seminars in China, but uh, changed all that. So it's been nice to talk to. Totally. And that's your lot. That's the end of the interview. So thank you again to my two excellent guests. That was a different and interesting conversation. Um, it was. I thought it was amusing how, in our interpretation of the book, our general life advice was don't try and interpret anything. Um, listeners, take that as you will, uh, but do read the book if you haven't. It's a great read, I think. So kudos to the author, Godfrey, but also the translator, who I don't think we named or credited enough, uh, Kanan Morse. It's a wonderful read, and, you know, it's the English version is, in a way, written by him. On to the plugs, I think. Now, I'm going to do a plug I haven't done in a while. Um, it's supposedly the most important one. Um, that's subjective, I suppose. But if you'd like to help the show, here's here's one thing you could do. You could 
give us reviews on your preferred podcast platform reviews it reviews and ratings uh, the big the big one to get is itunes itunes ratings will boost us i think i think the kind of the idea is we might will appear a little higher in um ranking tables but i think the big thing is search results if we have good reviews and ratings we will uh, place higher on search results when people search for things like chinese literature so that would be a big help if you want to benefit the show the most important thing i would say is to tell well we'll get to that first i'm going to plug the social media at churchific trchfic that's instagram uh, there is a discord you can join to talk to other other listeners that is there's an invite link for that in the show notes and you can get me the individual the human being uh, on twitter at at angus likes words now i mentioned the most important thing and uh, then i stopped myself but i'll start myself again the most important thing you can do for the show is spread the word organically or electronically or invisibly to other human beings so tell your friends tell your teacher tell the guy who repairs your hi-fi for you and if he suddenly vanishes it probably wasn't personal he probably just decided to opt out of society using one of Harry Potter's pieces of clothing. It's interesting Harry Potter didn't come up in this <laughs> the the interview, but oh well, uh, maybe next time. So until that next time or the next time for the uh, 66th episode, Zaijian.